This is a disclaimer. Ben and I do not actually agree or believe these conspiracy theories. Now, on to the show. Reptilians. What are they? Do they exist? Well, according to some 12 million Americans, reptilians are controlling their government. And that's bonkers. Very. According to the public policy polling survey, around 12 million people in the U.S. believe that interstellar lizards and people suits rule our country. Can we just talk about how insane that is? Like, lizard people... I mean, certain politicians may look like lizards, but they don't. That doesn't mean that they are lizards. They're just old and frail. Conspiracy theories in general are not bad. That's sort of the whole topic of this podcast. But they can be entertaining. They can be very entertaining. If we were all completely trusting, it would not be good for survival, says Rob Brotherton, an an academic psychologist and the author of Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe Conspiracy Theories. Why do you think conspiracy theories exist? First of all, I think it's to be entertaining and just like explain things that can't otherwise be explained by natural science. Yeah, or just like, what if? What if? So, there's some that I can see as believable, and then there's some that's like, that's very far out there. Like, like reptilians. Yeah, I mean, that's very far out there. I mean, who, lizard people. People, humanoid lizards, mm-hmm. walking on two legs in people suits. Where do they get the people suits? They, they, well, according to some conspiracy, conspiracy theory, don't they shapeshift? Some, yes. Yeah. What my thought is, what if they land, skin someone, and take their skin for a suit? That's very graphic, John. <laughs> I know. And I find it funny. Quick, write that down for scripted movies. Around 66 million Americans believe that aliens landed at Roswell, New Mexico, and around 22 million of those believe they have something in common with the lizard species of Earth. And those same 22 million people also believe that the moon landing was faked. Let's just, let's just get that out there. The moon landing was faked? I don't think so. <laughs> Researchers blocked research participants from receiving penicillin or extinct experiments to get treatment. That's a whole different topic there. It, yeah. It's all on one page, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, back, back to reptilians. Should we also mention where we're getting the, the information from? The Guardian. Okay. Yeah. We're getting it from The Guardian. Yeah, we should probably mention that in each podcast. We'll have the sources. Yeah. So that way we don't accidentally get copyright strike. Yeah. So that, that's all the information I have on reptilians. So I'm going to pull up the um, mysterious Nazi UFO. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, the Germans were smart in advance. I think, wasn't there someone that said that they believe, wasn't there some historians that believe that they're at least 20 years ahead of us technology-wise? I think that's, history? I think that's what it is, yeah. But, Nazi UFOs, like actual flying saucers. I don't know about that. The Nazi bell. Yeah. Nazi bell. So, according to History.com, 
on December 17th, 1944, near, I'm going to call that Breisach, Germany, a pilot was flying at approximately 800 feet above the ground when he saw five or six red flashing lights in a T-shape. The lights seemed to follow him closing in to about 8 o'clock and 1,000 feet before disappearing inexplicably just as they came. So, many people claim to see UFOs every year. Yeah. People go to conventions in... I know there's probably one in Roswell at this point. Yeah. There, I know there's one down in New Mexico and there's one in California. We've even had people in our community say that they've seen them. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't. Okay, well, someone claimed to record UFOs and you could see lights blinking, but it didn't It didn't really look like what they were thinking it was. Who was this? Actually, tell me later after podcast. According to History.com, again, then on December 22nd, two more flight crews sighted the lights. One crew near Hagnau reported two lights in an orange glow, seeming to rise from the Earth to 10,000 feet. So, what many people think these are is, like, I read about this before, many people think that a ship was viewing what was going on with World War II, mm-hmm. landed to, like, I don't know, take some samples maybe, and then flew mm-hmm. back off. Huh, wow, this smart civilization seems to be at war again. Woohoo. Have they created the atomic bomb yet? No, I don't think so. An Associated Press reporter broke the news to the Foo Fighter of the Foo Fighter sightings on January 1st, 1945, and theories about their origins quickly abounded. So, do you want to explain, like, what the Foo Fighters were and what they were seeing? Uh, let's see. Foo Fighters were jets that went after the Foo's, right? Yes. Other than a really impressive rock band. Well, according to History.com, the sightings were flares or weather balloons or... St. Elmo's fire, which is, I believe, static electricity in the atmosphere rubbing up against metal okay. and causing this kind of a whitish glow. Mm. So, in reality, these lights could have been other planes that were going through a statically charged area yeah. experiencing St. Elmo's fire, or a weather balloon could do the same thing theori- theoretically, mm. but m- most likely it would have been some, one of these. Was it the work of Nazi astrophysicists? Holding Nazi Germany responsible for the flying glowing orbs isn't too far-fetched. Many people believed this during the war. The Great War. For one, for one thing, the sightings took place over Nazi-occupied Europe at the time when Germany's Luftwaffe was making tremendous strides. The Luftwaffe was advancing so quickly that it, like you were saying, it may have been possible that the Germans were 20 years or more ahead of where we are. Yeah. Where we were. I mean, if you look at old Nazi planes from World War II, they look a lot more technically advanced yeah. than what America had back then. Then, like, after World War II, we did recruit some of their scientists for, like, NASA, right? I believe so. I think. Could you look that up real quick? just want to fact check and make sure it's correct or get rid of the misconception that it is correct. Alright, so next up is the unofficial Malaysia Airlines 370 disappearance. 
the unofficial until it was, I mean, parts of it were found. The triple seven has still never been found, and it's been six years. This March. Yeah, about six years. Uh, March eighth. It's March sixth when we're recording this. March six, March eighth, twenty fourteen. After departing from Kuala Lumpur for Beijing with two hundred twenty seven passengers and twelve crew members on board, Malaysia's former mine, prime minister stated that the aircraft flight ended somewhere in the Indian Ocean. So, I've seen many many documentaries of trying to find MH three seventy. And one of the things on, like, one of the things they talked about quite a bit was the pilot was really into flight simulators. He didn't, oh, yeah. he couldn't get enough flight time. That's true, folks. Anyway, he, they, police pulled the simulation from his computers and he was using a 777 with an equal number, number of people on board, an equal amount of fuel as much baggage as he could fit on board and sometime shut down the engines during the simulation, crashing them in the, in the ocean. There's another thing where they were able to track the plane through... The 777s have Pratt & Whitney engines. They have the ability to be fitted. And Pratt & Whitney... or It, it might have been Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce has this capability too. But they can actually use satellites to track the engine's health and what it's running at. So the plane was flying and satellites were pinging its engine's signals and getting information and showing where it was. And then the engines got shut off. And they, I'm assuming they glided for a little while. I, th- I believe that the stall speed of a 777 would be somewhere around 120 knots. So you're saying that... I'm saying I think the pilot crashed it. Okay. I th- I'm saying he ditched it. There, are, there have been numerous, numerous reports of fishermen off the coast of, well, they were in the Indian Ocean fishing and seeing a bright flash streaking down towards the water and seeing an explosion. There was even one news story that I read that a fisherman had documented it on his GPS and they searched there and there was no plane. Hmm. Like, is it possible that the plane went supersonic before they hit the water. Because going from 28,000 feet down to sea level, you've got quite a bit of time. Yeah. Especially if you're gliding down at like 30 degrees, you'll pick up speed real quick. So is it possible that the plane went supersonic and then when it crashed into the ocean, vaporized? So, the, another thing... Wait, is that thing recorded before? Like, planes going supersonic and then crashing the ocean and possibly doing something like that? It's been done in simulations, yes. Oh, in simulations, okay. And the damage that they found on the flap that was identified by Boeing as a piece of MH370, uh, it, it very well could have. The flaps were shown to be extended. The damage on the flaps correlates with the flaps being extended during the time of the crash. Mm-hmm. So, MH370 would have, if this was an act of terrorism like many people believe, 
how like the cockpit doors are locked from the inside there's no way to get in yeah. it's electronically locked they have to unlock it from the inside and if this was an act of terrorism like back in 9-11 the terrorists yanked open the doors or held guns to the flight attendants heads to get the pilots to open the doors could you theoretically do that here today because the pilots have been trained to never waver I think that's what it's called or what's what they do is they they have to land that plane safely that that's their duty to the airline so is it possible that this was not an act of terrorism or what is it possible that it could have been an act of terrorism or is it something else completely did the engines well no they retract did some of the flight control surfaces destabilize is there, a, is there a theory about the plane crossing my mind went through something similar to the Premier Triangle? I have seen, I've seen theories. Because I know that I think off the coast of Japan there's, isn't it called Devil's Triangle? Devil's Triangle and the Bermuda Triangle are the same thing. Oh, well there's, I swear to Well, they're, they're called, but I think you are right. I think there's a Devil's Triangle right off of Japan. Okay, let me look this up real quick. That's fine. Or you can look it up if you want. Alright, so, uh, let's see, so it is, so while we're doing this, it was, it was shown that the aircraft disappeared from Kuala Lumpur's radar screens long before they should have been out of range. So, I do think that it could have been an act of terrorism because you can turn off a transponder, which is used to track the plane. The plane could have also avoided detection by going between jurisdictions, so between Kuala Lumpur and Beijing and doing a zigzag path. Okay. The Devil's Sea, also known as the Dragon's Triangle, and the Pacific Bermuda Triangle. It's a region of Pacific just off Japan. So it is a thing. Okay. So the... It, it, it was... Yes, it, there was a Nazi who worked for NASA. Back to that topic. Okay. Werner von Braun. Okay. Is he the only one or is there more than There are probably more, but I'm assuming he's the most famous one. Yeah. I know that there was a movie that was kind of a, I think it was, I think it was more of a family movie. It had like this kid whose dad was like a German scientist that was working for NASA. Do you know what movie I'm talking about? I do not. Uh, it was a good movie. I remember watching it when I was younger. Because I, I heard that the kid got made in front of school because his dad was a ex-German Nazi scientist. Continuing on with the topic of aircraft and conspiracy theories, D.B. Cooper. I just had an article pulled up where this was on the news quite a long time ago. It was July 11th, 2019 is when the article happened. But supposedly a 93-year-old man 
who claimed to have a different name than what people think he is. People think he's Stevie Cooper, the guy who was never found. They never found a body. They never found the money. They, the pilot, like, the pilot died quite a long time ago, though. So, D.B. Cooper, or Dan Cooper, is the pseudonym of an unidentified man who hijacked a Boeing 727 aircraft in the northwest United States in the airspace between Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, on November 24th, 1971. So, if you're not familiar with the D.B. Cooper conspiracy theory, he basically had a briefcase with him filled with supposed dynamite. He told the flight attendant this. The flight attendant went and talked to the captain who he wanted to keep the aircraft safe, get it on the ground. So they were going to follow his demands. Otherwise, he said he was going to blow up the plane. Anyway, uh, they landed. I don't remember where they landed, but he got, I believe, he got $200,000 in ransom equivalent to today's money of one million. $260,000. And he para- he parachuted to an uncertain fate out of the out of the 727 airliner and if you're not familiar with aircraft either the 727s have rear air stairs so the catering companies can actually load food on board the galley of the aircraft. That's a thing. Anyway, he jumped out of those and he parachuted to an uncertain fate. Despite an extensive manhunt and a protracted FBI investigation, D.B. Cooper has never been located or identified. It remains the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. So, mm, the from what I've read before, the U.S. government, and I know this because I've seen money before, the U.S. government has serial numbers on each piece of money that stores have to report to banks. Okay. And the banks report to the, the federal government. So if he would have spent any of that money given it to a business like a Dollar General, for example, if he'd given $20 to Dollar General to buy, I don't know, cat food, Dollar General would turn that into the bank. The bank would then type in the serial number to a computer, which would then send the data to the U.S. government. So they would, that money would be flagged and it'd be, it'd be held in the bank. No one else can get it. And they would then tr- try and track his movements from there, from what I read. But how long has the U.S. government been doing this for, like, tracking? Quite a long time. Okay. I, it doesn't give a specific date. Makes sense. On Thanksgiving Eve, November, 20, November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black attache case approached the flight counter on Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper, the pseudonym, and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on flight 305, a 30-minute trip to Seattle. He boarded the aircraft in a Boeing 727-100 with the FAA registration of November 467 U. U.S. and took seat 18C, 18E by one account, 15D by another. So there's quite a bit of disagreement on the aircraft that they were on board. That aircraft is no longer in service and has been scrapped. I do know that. 
5305, approximately one-third full, departed Portland on a schedule uh, at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant, sitting nearest him in the jump seat. He handed her a note, and he bas the note basically was along the lines of, give me what I want, or this plane goes down with everyone on board. He, he requested six parachutes and $200,000, and many people think he was going to take hostages, so the U.S. would, you, the government would give him six working parachutes just, just so they couldn't, just so they couldn't give him a fake one. He jumped out of the plane, pulled the cord, and nothing happens, and he falls to his death. The passengers were released at 5.24, and Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, and the aircraft landed safely at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. It was more than an hour after sunset, and the jet was then taxied to an isolated runway and taken off again for the second time before he jumped out of the back and parachuted to the unknown. D-Day. Ah, uh, yes, June 6, 1944. 75th anniversary. Woo. Well, that was last year. This year will be the 76th. Yeah. So, recently it was on the news that more Nazi World War II bunkers have been discovered near the D-Day beaches of Normandy and... I believe it was the D-Day beaches of Normandy. Specifically, Omaha and Utah, I believe. The discovery was featured on Expedition Unknown, which airs on Discovery Channel. They discovered a huge Nazi bunker that hasn't seen the light of day in over 75 years. We were able to dig down and reveal the doors and go inside. They are frozen in time, and there are artifacts inside there. The bunkers are each part of a complex known as the Maisie Battery that is about two miles inland from Omaha Beach when it was operational. The battery had a total of 14 huge guns, including, and I have no idea what this means, but 150 millimeter howitzers. Want to look that up real quick? Okay, so oh, it looks it's like artillery. Yeah. Oh my, that's a big gun. <laughs> Wait, so that was in the bunker? No, it was one of the guns they used. Experts use lidar or light detection and ranging technology, which uses a laser to measure distances to the Earth's surface to study the site. We're looking at a picture of the end of a gas mask filter, which was found in the newly excavated World War II bunker of Maisie Battery. So, Hitler's secret Nazi war machine revealed in hidden bases. The Maisie Battery played a crucial role in the events of D-Day, explains its website. The German army had built Maisie in, in total secrecy whilst letting the world know all about the nearby battery at Point du Hoc, a position that was under construction on D-Day. It's an overwhelming place to visit, 
This was a part of one of the darkest chapters in modern history, says Gates. There are all sorts of things inside that bunker. We discovered the remains of gas masks, ammunition, and Nazi helmets. Apparently, there are a lot of military installations around Normandy that have been cleaned up, but Maisie is one of the few places where you can still explore trenches and beaches and get a sense of what it was like on D-Day. The secret Nazi Antarctic... Have you heard of this? They are Antarctic base before? Maybe. Basically, they built a huge bunker in the ice so that if things went south, Hitler could retreat to there and rule from there. Yeah. Yeah, I might have heard about this before, I think, but... Yeah. Holocaust escape tunnel found. Prisoners dug with spoons to escape. That's a thing. Yeah. Well, I think that just about covers it. Yeah. Yeah. This podcast is under development, so this might not be the best, but it's what we have to work with. It also, we might also move up to other topics to talk about sometime in the near future other than conspiracy theories. And with that, goodbye. <laughs>